Hey guys, it's Destry. And Katie. And we're the Practical Idealists, and today we're going to be talking about Dumbo. God help us. So, it was released in 1941. And right before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Like, what, like two or three months? It was released in October. Oof. There was actually a story that they were going to do a Mammal of the Year on Time Magazine to celebrate the success of Dumbo, and it got... Overshadowed? Like, yeah, by... Pearl Harbor. By all of the people dying. Yeah, but they still ran the story in, like, the next issue of Time. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they just bumped it. Yeah, it just wasn't a cover story. For some strange reason. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> but this one's also in the film registry. I have kind of a hard time with that. I feel like it's because it was a departure from the normal Disney stuff. Mm -hmm. So they're seeing it as kind of a progression of his style. Because it was very different stylistically. Not just because it was less detailed and, you know, less money was spent. But it seems like it's a departure from the direction that he was going with the first three films. Yeah. They were very artistic. And each one kind of improved upon themselves in different ways. Especially Fantasia. Like, Fantasia yeah. is just beautiful. And it's fantastical. But it made no money. Which is why Dumbo came around, because they needed something quick to drive revenue. Mm-hmm. And kind of uh, bolster the studio while the war was really beginning. Once America, yeah, was yeah. jumping into. Mm -hmm. And I thought I saw somewhere that the release into Europe was pretty much canceled because of the war. The same thing happened with... Fantasia and Pinocchio, that's why they did so poorly, is because they didn't have any foreign markets right. giving any of their money to the movie. Mm -hmm. This was a very, very bad time. Like, just horrible well, time. Yeah, it was a horrible time for everyone. But it also happened during the cartoonist strike. Yes, this was the movie that came about during it. They had the story basically ready to go, and they had like some very rough animatics started for it, and then the strike happened. Which we talked about in the prelude to this series. How his master artist, Art Babbitt, really kind of, well, in Walt's eyes, turned against him. And just turned into the embodiment of evil. And turned, like, the entire studio against him. Yeah, everyone went with him. Even though he was one of the higher paid people, he saw how everyone else was being treated. And how they were getting paid. And he was like, this is ridiculous. It's usually associated with, like, the loss of the family atmosphere that they had. And that was something that they said in the documentary I watched, that Walt really felt the loss. Mm -hmm. And he, well, number one, he didn't understand why everyone was doing that, because to him, nothing was wrong. But number two, like, this was the first time when he started keeping tabs on his employee, and, like, there was someone who said that they were a secretary for Walt Disney, and she was told to pull the files of everyone who had been on strike. <laughs> and they, like, kept the files in a separate cabinet or something wow. so that they could keep an eye on these people. Jesus. The beginning of his suddenly looking over his shoulder all the time, which continued through the rest of his career. Right. And actually the clown characters, specifically after they use Dumbo in the act. And they're talking about they're going to go hit up the big boss for money. Mm -hmm. That was supposed to be the cartoonist. Yep. That makes sense. Yep, uh-huh. And if you have an opportunity, Google or YouTube Walt's speech to the cartoonist. <laughs> he had, he made everyone come to, like, the auditorium that they had. And he gave them the speech about how, well, if some people don't think that they're getting paid right or treated enough, they're just not working hard enough. 
And it is insane listening to what he had to say. It's really interesting, though. And it makes you wonder whether or not he was trying to be a condescending douchebag or if that was literally just who he was him, like trying to explain to them how he really actually felt but it is telling both. too of the time the american dream pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and making a way for yourself and if good things aren't happening to you it's because you're not trying hard enough and no union can help you with and that. no union can help you with that he had already signed with like essentially another okay. type of union i forget what it was called but the people kept asking to sign with the new reiterated version of it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm already with the quote unquote There's union. no need for that. Yeah. All of my people are happy. Why would we need a union? We're a family. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's just interesting to think about it in those terms too. But the fact that this movie was coming out in such a, a harsh time in history, like it must have been really special for a lot of people to be able to go to a movie that wasn't about war propaganda and wasn't about how to keep yourself safe and mm -hmm. this is all of the horrors that are happening in Europe. Like, let's go watch a fun movie about a little elephant who doesn't talk. Right. And this is probably one of the shortest of the Disney features. And actually, his distributor, RKO Pictures, which he stayed with up through the 50s, gave him, like, an ultimatum. They said that you can either cut it down to a short subject or we're going to release it as like a B movie. And he's like, uh, no, I'm not gonna do either I'm not one of going those. to do either of those, please, and thank you. Mm -hmm. So they ended up releasing it exactly how he wanted it. As usual, because he always somehow manages to get his way no matter what. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing to me learning about this, that he screwed everyone over. He never does what he says he's gonna do. He always goes over budget. He always goes over time. And yet somehow everything still gets made. <laughs> it's crazy. It's really, really good to be a white man in 1940. <laughs> it really, really is. And also to have someone really smart at your back. Like, he seemed to have a talent for collecting talent. And like loyal people, even though he didn't really Yeah, think commanding so. loyalty. Mm -hmm. So yeah, interesting that this movie was ever able to come about after all of the failure. And this was from an established property, right? Yes, it was a story that was released on this weird toy that had moving images, like you would like turn a handle or something. And it was only supposed to be like three pages and four images or something like that. Like it was a very short little story. And I guess there was something about it that just caught his attention. Because I mean, I looked into this roll a book concept and I couldn't even figure out what the hell it was. They have like maybe a diagram, maybe, I say maybe, a diagram on like Google Images that you can look at, but it's not very well detailed, and it doesn't really explain to you what was supposed to happen with it. It was a it very It just seems like it's one concept. of those, because they kind of have something similar now where you can kind of push a button and suddenly things start shifting. I feel like that was kind of what the idea was. And this was one of the first of the Disney canon to be released on VHS. It was released side by side with Alice in Wonderland. And I need to make a quick correction. For some reason, my brain told me that it wasn't until Michael Eisner became the CEO of the company that they started releasing these on VHS and Betamax and Laserdisc and all those fun little Betamax. 80s formats. <laughs> but this was released in 1981, which was like a full, like almost four years before Michael Eisner was the CEO. So in our last conversation about Pinocchio, 
that was one of the first to be released under Michael Eisner. Mm. And this, I guess, was the first to be released under, I guess, Ron Miller. And it also looks like Walt Disney was never interested in the movie until people literally baited him for it. I mean, you said that they, like, wrote it in, like, installments and, like, threw it at him. And then he finally came at them and he was like, okay, fine, how is it? Just do it. (laughs) If you must. We're already this far along, we might as well finish it. (laughs) And it was the last profitable Disney movie until 1950's Cinderella. Oof. You know, putting it in context, there's these big four narratively driven films that he did in the 30s and 40s. Snow White, Pinocchio, Dumbo, and Bambi. And to think that only two of those four actually made money is ridiculous to and, me. And yet he still, they just kept letting him do stuff. Nowadays, you have two bombs and you're yeah, almost like, at the verge of bankruptcy. No one would ever allow him to make another movie nowadays. Like, that would have been the kiss of death. It's ridiculous to me to think that for over a decade, and I do mean over a decade, and he released at least 10 movies in that time, only two of them actually made any kind of money at all. That's completely insane. <laughs> and I thought this was just another interesting little tidbit before we go into like story and stuff. They released it cut down, of course, on TV in oh. like 1955 to help promote Disneyland. <laughs> Of course they did. And of course, the voice actors for this, you see two regulars featured, one of them getting their start here mm-hmm. with, a, what was it, Sterling Holloway? Oh, yeah. So the original voice of Winnie the Pooh. Yep, he's Mr. Stork. He's the stork. And then Verna Felton, who is the matriarch elephant, like the, the big annoying one, mm-hmm. who also did the Cinderella uh, fairy godmother, and then she was one of the fairies in Sleeping Beauty. And she was also Queen of Hearts. Queen of Hearts, Yeah. Man. So he's already starting to reuse people that he loves. And then apparently Mel Blanc is once again uncredited. And I think it's mainly just because the same hiccup that they ended up using for Gideon in Pinocchio was reused for Dumbo during (laughs) the pink elephant sequence. Of course. So he is technically in the movie. I also thought that this was interesting that Cliff Edwards, who was Jiminy Cricket, was actually the main crow in the crow ensemble. The very racist crow ensemble. Who they called Jim Crow. Oh my gosh. All the way through production because it was easier shorthand. So since we're here already, let's address this. So something that has continued to boggle my mind, and I even talked about this in Pinocchio, is just the racism that is embedded in these movies it is incredible and i won't go too much into it because i feel like we pretty much covered that in pinocchio right. but yet again we're seeing these messages that are just put in there there's all of these black crows singing negro spirituals mm-hmm. and black workers and black workers setting up the uh circus yeah the tents in the morning all of whom do not have faces by the way nope. which really that struck me very hard they were just shapes yep again watching it today is so hard to see that and realize that that was just no one would have been like whoa how could they do that that never would have crossed anyone's mind to even question that There's a debate whether or not the crows are a progressive stereotype of black people versus a harming stereotype of black people. Because they're actually intelligent as opposed to a lot of the other characters in the film. And they they talk about, you know, believing in yourself. Like, they're the ones that 
promote like the main moral of the story. But isn't that still kind of a stereotype of the beloved slave building up the master? I guess so, yeah. Technically, they're not enslaved because they're crows, but still, like, it still makes me feel uncomfortable. And I mean, besides Cliff Edwards, who was definitely not black, being the leader of the band here, the Hal Johnson Choir, okay, which was, you know, an all-black choir, mm-hmm. was actually the other voices of the crows. Okay, so they actually had black actors doing the voices, which probably would not have happened a lot in that time. Right. So at least there's that. They're giving people work. Even if they had a white guy leading the black people. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it's just yet another instance of the racism that we're seeing. And even like, not just black racism, but... Some of the Italian stereotypes you see repeated here, you saw also in Pinocchio. There's a lot of cultural stereotypes embedded in these first three movies that I'm... Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. It really is a lot to see now. And I think that probably the most telling one, because... We talked a lot about like subliminal messaging in the other ones, where it's like these really quick frames of animation where it's like, that's a little bit... Questionable. Right. But in this one, there was a lot less of that, which I do appreciate. When they were racist, at least they were open about (laughs) it. But I think that the most telling little quick frame is that they have like a gorilla, like a black ape. Oh, yeah. In one of the circus cages as they're like showing them off through the town. He's like banging on the bars and doing his job. And one of the bars comes loose. And instead of deciding to, you know, rip the rest of them out, he puts the bar back. Which may or may not be... I mean, you can read into that as you will. You can read into it, but it also could just be like, oh, I'm just doing my job and I made a little mistake there. (laughs) It was just a really interesting moment that the black ape chose to stay in his cage. I love that all of the cats in the circus just did nothing but sleep the whole time. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) They were just laying around doing nothing. (laughs) And then all of the, the elephant women are all just gossiping biddies. Mm-hmm. Like, they're all just huge bitches. Yep, more female disempowerment. Ugh. And then that very disturbing animal cruelty scene. Just all oh. the animal cruelty. And I feel like that was the main reason I didn't like it as a kid. The scene with Dumbo's mom really upset me. Because when we were watching it, you said that it was very mean-spirited. The main joke of the entire thing is making fun of him. Yeah, the entire movie is about people being a jerk to someone who looks different, which yet again is a thing that happens. It's like, oh, look, it's funny that he's tripping over his ears, and it's funny that they're making fun of him, and it's funny they commit to this joke that, oh, isn't it so adorably hilarious? That they're mocking him, and then they punish the mom for being like, you guys are being jerks. Yeah. And the mom never gets any justice either. You see at the end, they're like, oh, I'm going to say hi to my baby, but what happened? I guess... Because he was the big main attraction now that he can fly, that they gave him whatever he wanted. But all you know is that she's put in solitary confinement and just has chains wrapped around her and is being beat the crap out of. Well, I mean, to be fair, Timothy, the mouse character, can talk to humans, maybe? Sure. Well, he did have that dream sequence where yeah. he, he inserted certain thoughts to the guy's head. I'm not mature enough to enjoy this movie, apparently. The word climax was said far too many times for my comfort. (laughs) And for, like, a big, prolonged period. Like, it wasn't even just like, oh, it's sprinkled in. Like, it was literally for five minutes, every third to fifth word was climax. (laughs) I am not mature enough to watch Dumbo. I freely admit that I'm not. (laughs) And we were literally staring across from each other as we were watching it, just... (laughs) 
<laughs> Climax. Anyway, um, the other thing I did like about this movie that, well, there are two things I actually liked about the movie. Because mm-hmm. in general, it wasn't bad necessarily, but it wasn't great. I thought that Dumbo as a character was really cute. The characters were really adorable. They weren't necessarily, you know, anatomically correct a lot of times. Even though they did bring real elephants into the studio to study. Yeah, like the walking was better. But like when Dumbo was sitting and stuff, that was weird. Mm-hmm. He's a really cute character. Like you want to hug him. He's really adorable. They really enjoyed their non-talking. Yeah, movie. they embraced the non-talkingness. You saw a lot of emotion on the faces. I thought one of the best scenes was when Dumbo was first playing with his mom. Mm-hmm. That was so cute. It was so charming and so sweet. The other thing I really liked was the engine. Casey Jr.? Yeah, Casey Jr. I really liked that he had a little bit of a personality and the idea that everything, including the mechanics, was working together to make the circus come to life. And his little engine who could Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, so I thought that was really cute as well. But overall, for me, it wasn't particularly good. I was kind of bored by it. Oh, yeah. It was like a very long, underwhelming, goes-nowhere kind of a movie. And, I mean, the last ten minutes kind of make you feel good because, you know, you finally get to the moral of the story, finally. And the big song from the movie. And, you know, you see him triumph over all of the the mean-spirited mocking. Like, he becomes, like, much less of a joke. And this is another instance, just like you were talking in Pinocchio, about how songs from the movie penetrate popular culture. Even if they're not, like, a really big fancy movie or whatever, like, Baby Mine is something I remember hearing and not knowing it was from Dumbo. Mm -hmm. But the music did seem to take a little bit of a downturn along with the animation. Like, it was more embedded in popular culture, I'd say. Like, the style of music, as opposed to some of the other movies where it's very, you know, sweeping and orchestral. It really kind of showed how their technology and the sound quality changed right. between the 30s and the 40s. And embedding it into film too. It had a very, very distinct of its time kind of yeah, it really did. sound to a it. A 40s sound. Which I think kind of continues along the same wavelength as they get further into the 40s. I agree with that. I think it continues even now. The music has a feeling of when Whatever it's from. Time. Yeah. I think my biggest problem with the movie, ultimately, was that it didn't feel like anything actually happened until the last maybe 15 minutes. And even then, not really. It's like they spend the entire movie working up to him doing something, and then he does it and it's over. Mm-hmm. So I guess that it makes sense because it's about the journey, not the destination. But it just, it feels like he ultimately doesn't really do much. It's obviously less artistic and more mainstream. Like, they were really going for what was going to get as many butts in the seats as possible. Right. And they did not spend hardly any money on it. Like, it was the least amount of money that they spent on any of their feature-length animations at that time. I noticed that a lot of, like, the character models were much more simple Like we talked about how the elephants weren't even really anatomically correct. Like, they didn't spend a whole lot of time on that. And a lot of the human characters were much more exaggerated. They're caricatures. And they used watercolor backgrounds. I think that you told yeah, me that. Yeah, they used watercolor backgrounds because it was cheaper. I think they also did some of that in Snow White. Right. As opposed to using, like, oil paints, which they did in Pinocchio. Which I think you can see in the weight of the background. It yeah. has a little bit less weight because of that. Mm-hmm. 
I don't want to completely write it off because it does have a place in their canon. Well, it did its job, you know? It accomplished what they were trying to accomplish. It was poppy, it was cute, it got people to come in, it wasn't an artistic masterpiece, but it was never supposed to be. Right. So I think ultimately it did the job that they created it to do. It's just kind of a letdown. We're not really a big fan of this time period, we'll be honest and say it. 40s are hard for me. It's such a big step down in quality from the rest of the movies that he has released that it bothers me to like a degree that I'm not even sure why it bothers me. My insight is that it bothers you because you see what he's capable of Mm -hmm. and then he was denied the ability to do that, which is upsetting, but also understandable because he keeps doing these things and no one's appreciating it. Right. So if no one can appreciate him at his best, then he's going to have to dumb it down for the rest of the world. And I feel like that was kind of the beginning of the end as far as his current state of mind. Well, he was becoming disillusioned, I think, realizing that everything that he accomplished with Snow White was never going to happen again. That something that he cared passionately about and that he put the work and detail and time into, he kept trying to recreate that and then he never got the same response as he did to Snow White. And suddenly he's not really overseeing this silly little cartoony... Well, he's he's starting to get sucked into the business side of it too, rather than being the person who's overseeing creative aspects. And he's no longer animating anything himself. He's not putting his own hands into it. Mm -hmm. He's the one who's going off and smiling at press and reassuring people that this is going to happen and signing contracts and he's also been disillusioned with his artists so he's I feel like this was the tipping point for him as far as realizing that he was no longer in the same business that he started in and I think that that kind of contributed to the fact that he was less involved in the animation studio specifically after Cinderella mainly because he was focusing on Disneyland but I think that he's like well I gave them my all, and none of that was... They didn't want it. Right. So I I made this silly little cartoony movie, and it did really fucking well, so I don't really need to give them 110%, because even my 80-90% is just as good, apparently. Yeah. And I think that was part of the reason why he had such a hard time when Sleeping Beauty was denied its box office return. Mm-hmm. That was his pet project. That was probably the most elaborate of the movies that they produced in the 50s. He was very, very involved in trying to make it an exclusive experience in an artistic feat. It is interesting. It's demoralizing. Yeah, and it's interesting that he puts the work into making it artistic and beautiful, and those aren't the movies that people of that time loved. And yet suddenly now we're able to look and be like, wow, these movies are so beautiful and fantastic. And it makes you wonder if they were released now, what the difference would be. Just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. So the last little tidbit of information I wanted to share before we go into our rating is the fact that, did you know, Katie, that there was a Dumbo 2 in production? I did know that, actually. (laughs) I saw something about that. What was the story supposed to be? Apparently, and this was being done by Disney Toon Studios, which had done all of the prior Disney sequels, and apparently the story was supposed to be that Dumbo and his animal friends, which we also never get to see in this, get lost in the city somehow (laughs) 
uh, after being separated from the circus course. train. And they go on like an adventure through the city and has something to do with finding out what happened to his father for some reason. <laughs> and it was very complicated is what it sounded like. And they got a lot of concept art. They have a lot of rough animatics for it. And then when John Lasseter took over the animation studios in the 2000s, he was like, no, no more sequels. That sounds stupid. We're not doing that. But it was like a third of the way through production. And they actually had like a coming soon on a couple of their VHS DVDs at that time saying that it was coming out. And then people were like, so what happened Dumbo with that? too? <laughs> well, and now we have the live action movie coming out actually this year. Yeah. With a whole bunch of famous people. And mm. it's more about the humans yeah. than about the elephant. What it sounds like to me is that they're trying to make Pete's Dragon again. Because they did a live action film of that here, I'd say, about five, ten years ago. I actually forgot about that. And it didn't really do well. And I think that that's kind of how they're trying to spin this one. Is that, oh, well, we'll give it more to the humans and then will reinvent the story so that it has more to do with this, you know, fantastical element, but grounded in reality. It's just an odd choice, I think, of all of the live action movies that they've been working on. Especially Dumbo was Tim not Tim Burton. Yeah, Dumbo was not one that I'd like to see a Pinocchio from Tim Burton. Right. But it wasn't one that I would have been like, yes, this is the movie that needs to be made live action. So for our rating system, we're gonna do what? Out of five pink elephants. I'm cool with that. All right, go ahead, Dustry. Out of five pink elephants, mm. what would you give Dumbo? Out of five heffalumps. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Sterling Holloway. I mean, I hate to do it just because, like I said before, it deserves its place in the canon. But I just don't have an affinity for it. I don't really like it all that much. So I would have to say about two elephants. That's where I was going to go too. I'm going to give two pink elephants. Not because it's really a bad movie, but because it doesn't really have a story. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I at least need a story to watch. It has to be more than just cute. So yeah, I'm going to give it two pink elephants. I mean, in my opinion, it's one of those movies that you show your, your young children. They're not going to be frightened by it. Maybe the heffalump scene. but I feel it's, like it's good for younger kids. Yeah. like There's not really much, unfortunately, to appreciate about it from an adult standpoint. Yeah. Besides the history of it, which we've gone into in depth here. And even that's kind of run of the mill as compared to Pinocchio's New Life. It's underwhelming. That's the best way I can put it. I agree. It's definitely the most underwhelming of the feature, narratively driven animation from the 30s and the 40s. Well, I haven't finished that, so I can't agree with that or disagree. <laughs> Based on my prior knowledge. Based on your prior knowledge. <laughs> All right, guys. Up next, we're going to be talking about Bambi. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of the first half of our uh, 1938 to 1942 Disney section with uh, 1942's Bambi. The long and arduous journey. Which it shouldn't have been, but... <laughs> it somehow still was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were saying that having rewatched all of these recently, as we have, that you're just not really into it that much. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we did it. And I think that it's important to see how... Yeah, the progression, how everything has changed. And also to note that I don't really trust Walt Disney as a creative visionary. 
which is weird to think about because he created this insane empire. But it seems like all of the movies that he had his personal hand in, I haven't really liked that much. They've been really beautiful, but not much to the story. I mean, do you think that there's anything in particular that you can attribute to why you're having such a difficult time? To me, it seems that he was more worried about the visual impact and about surprising people with what he was doing than about it being a good movie. The things I like are so story and character driven, like all of the things that matter a lot to me, that in these movies, whether it's just because, you know, they're geared mainly toward children, or if it was just a very different time in media, I'm not sure. I find all of these movies to be really lacking in substance and story. And maybe that just shows that I'm an uncultured swine or something. But I, I just don't get anything out of these movies. Which is weird to me because I would consider especially Bambi and especially a lot of these older films as like character studies. I had a really hard time finding any connection to any of these characters. Besides them being adorable. Particularly in Bambi. I get that Bambi is this big environmental earmark and that it has been the standard for a lot of things. But from a story standpoint, there's kind of not a lot going on. Well, I was interested to learn that Disney loaned Bambi out to the national government to do PSAs for, you know, wilderness safety and all that kind of stuff. So kind of like Smokey Bear. Well, that's the thing is that after he took the rights back, they had to invent a new mascot. So that's when Smokey the Bear happened. Really? That's really interesting. So basically, he helped create Smokey the Bear as we know him today. So what were they going to do with Bambi, though? Just make him like a little cute, sad story? or? Well, I mean, he was the, the spokesperson for about a year, it said. I did not know that. So I don't know if there's any of those PSAs that survive. I wonder survive, if you find but... those. That might be interesting to see. I'm, I'm curious how they would use him. Because I know in like the early aughts when the sequel, well, the mid-cool happened, that they also used him for PSAs as well. But it wasn't specifically like, hi, I'm Bambi. You should <laughs> treat your wilderness better. It was like showing scenes from the, the movie. Oh, I kind of remember that. And then at the end, it like started the fire. And it was like, don't let our forests be once upon a time or and something I, like I that. I feel like I remember during Saturday morning cartoons, you know, they always used to have like the be safe kids and do the right thing type of commercials. Don't do drugs. I feel like I remember one that had some scenes from Bambi and it was something like, go outside today. That might be completely made up, but I feel like I remember something about that. It's very, very possible. Also, this one, going along with the trend that we have established thus far, is also archived in the National Film Registry. I understand this one more than I understand Pinocchio, I think. This one has more of an artistic impact for me because of the fact that all of the animals are so intensely drawn. I feel like the animation is a lot more beautiful and detailed than it was in Pinocchio. I mean, it's definitely a much more of an art film than yeah. any of the other ones have been. It punches more of a visual impact. It's kind of like a contemplation or, you know, a meditation, if you will, of like nature and animals. Well, and I think that in that respect, it does a good job. Like, it definitely makes you feel like you're you're getting a little slice of life for them. And I think that they do a good job 
of instilling fear early on in the audience without knowing what it is you're afraid of, like knowing that there's danger out there. It's so unassumingly beautiful and tranquil that you know that in order for a story to develop in some kind of way, that there has to be a certain amount of threat. Well, I think that we as humans are able to look at this movie and kind of have an idea of what's coming, even if you didn't know what the storyline was. Mm -hmm. Like, they're deer in a forest. (laughs) But we as an audience, I think, know that something bad's going to happen. So whether it's a wolf coming and attacking or whether it's a human coming and attacking, there was always kind of a preparing for threat. And that could just be that I knew it was coming. So I'm like, oh God, it's coming. When is it coming? Which is weird because you never really see it on screen. Yeah. And everyone always gets like all messed up like, oh, Bambi's mom's death, but nothing actually happens. Well, I think that when we were watching it, you were looking up facts about it and you found out that originally... Walt Disney wanted man to be engulfed in the fire that is started yeah, at the like end he, of the film. Yeah, he was going to get killed by his own hubris, essentially. But they made it so that man was this unseen threat. Constant threat. Yeah. The idea that occurred to me was that man usurps nature, whether it's directly or indirectly. Yeah. There's nothing that we as humans can do Barring... Not being awful. (laughs) Right. But I mean, it's just like the natural progression of the human race is always going to destroy something as it creates something. Well, and it's also interesting to note that the original source material for this movie is a book written by an Austrian author who actually self-exiled himself from Austria Hmm. during the Nazi occupation because he was Jewish. And all of his books were put on, you know, this is the list of Jewish authors. I mean, I would be hiding too if my yeah. name was out there. Like actually on a list somewhere. Yeah. So he wrote this book intentionally for adults. It was kind of like Watership Down was more for adults than for kids. It's hailed as one of the first like environmental novels. I'm finding this book really interesting. I'm trying to find an English copy out there for myself. And what I thought was interesting is that in the book, there is apparently a character that was initially intended to be in the movie, and they decided to scrap it. It's like one of Bambi's cousins or something, and he gets introduced to a human who comes and like pets him and feeds him and is really nice. So the next time he sees a human, he goes up to it and they shoot him instantly. Well, that's nice. And they were like thinking about including that in the movie, but again, they made that decision that they never wanted to see man again. So in the book, there's a lot more about man being this omnipresent evil, which I think is also interesting considering who wrote it. His name is Felix Salton. Yes, and he is better known in the German-speaking world for writing erotica. As you do. As you do. (laughs) If you can't make any money off of your chronicling the life of a roe deer. That started a big issue for kids because they had to change the name of the deer in German-speaking because the red deer doesn't exist in Germany, but the roe deer doesn't exist in America. Like, look up the deer controversy. (laughs) It was really twisted and interesting. Add that to your search engine history. Bambi, the deer controversy. (laughs) German deer controversy. So the movie premiered internationally, which was a big change from Pinocchio and Dumbo, and I think Fantasia as well, because, you know, Britain was embroiled in World War II long before we were involved in it. So that was what has historically attributed to why none of the films after Snow White did as well as they should have. Because of the war. (laughs) Right. The fact that this one premiered internationally, like the first showing of it 
was not in New York or Los Angeles, but in London, I think it said. Interesting. So it's a weird time to be releasing your art film. About baby deers getting orphaned. <laughs> right. In London in 1942, the middle of World War II. <laughs> During the bombing. Yeah. It did lose the studio money, which... Big surprise. Right, exactly. It went way over budget. They worked on it starting the year prior to when Snow White was released. And by 1940, it was already at 820-something thousand dollars. And they had a little, like, Disney zoo at the studios that the artists could go to and study the animals that they were working on so that they could get a more accurate view of all of these animals, which I, I love the idea of being like, I'm going to go to the zoo at work so I can go promise <laughs> a deer or a skunk. <laughs> and there was either a critic or somebody at the animation studio that basically called them out on how poorly animated, especially in Snow White, their animals were. <laughs> And the quote is, they move like a sack of flour. <laughs> that was the biggest insult in 1940s, that their deer moved like a sack of flour. I bet Disney took that really personally, though, with him having such high standards for his animation. Mm -hmm. He was probably, like, really upset by that. Here's the really sad thing, is that it was almost profitable. I think that the budget ended up being, like, $1.7 and they only made, like, $1.64 Oh, so it, was... so it was so close, but you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, especially in 1942, that's a lot of money to lose. Oh, yeah. So you would think looking at the numbers nowadays that, oh, well, that's not too bad. But adding in the fact that all We're the movies the prior to it had lost even more money, mm -hmm. it's really like, wow, now I understand why they stopped doing feature length animation after this point for at least a good six to ten years. And they intended for it to be the second one that they released. Like, they wanted it to come right after Snow White, which I think kind of goes to your point about why it feels so artsy and slow. Right. Because that's kind of the way that I feel about Snow White. Mm -hmm. Even though there was no distinctive narrative in Pinocchio, it was just kind of like a whole bunch of vignettes of little story structures. But there still was more of a story. And even with Dumbo, even though it was a cutesy little whatever-the-hell movie, it was not only a half hour less in the runtime than any of the other ones had been, but there was no big expectation for that one. Mm. And you could tell that immediately with the animation quality, which we talked about earlier. Where did this come from? Especially yeah. after Dumbo. Like, what the fuck? It feels a little out of place. Which is the way I felt about all of the music in the movie, too. It just doesn't feel like it belongs there. I think that when you were looking it up, you said that this was one of the first ones to integrate, like, non-diegetic sound. Explain that. Well, basically what diegetic or non-diegetic sound is, is that when something is diegetic, that means that in the world of the film, it's happening. Gotcha. If someone has the radio on in a film, and they're listening to the music that's on the radio, that's diegetic. What non-diegetic sound is, is like the score underneath of it, or if there's just music playing over a scene that isn't coming organically from what's happening in the show. The characters have to be actively participating in the music. Right. Gotcha. 
So in Bambi, it's more of a soundtrack than actual, like, music in the movie. Right. It just feels like it doesn't have a place in the world that is created of Bambi. That music doesn't feel like it belongs there. In Snow White, we talked a lot about how the soundtrack was kind of playing to them knocking on the door or them stepping in or out of the room. And they kind of worked their way out of that with Pinocchio and especially Dumbo. Now this is the return where when Bambi's frolicking in the wood, the animation is timed to the swells of the music. And like the rain song, even though it is a song that has lyrics and is sung, at the end especially, you see how the raindrops are making the different instrumental noises. Mm -hmm. All of these old-fashioned ideas aren't being put back into effect in 1942, and it just... He's style regressing. It feels out of place. Like, it just doesn't fit. Especially the social climate of that time. Oh, yeah. A lot of the the issue that it had when it first came out was that it abandoned the fantasy aspect that he Uh, had cultivated with the previous films. That was something that stood out to me, too, is, like, this movie is coming out during a war, right? So why do we need to see a really sad, depressing movie about an orphan and how man is horrible? Like, we already know that man is horrible. We're in the middle of a war. (laughs) We know that man is the greatest enemy. Why can't we have a nice, fun movie where people are singing? Because, goddammit, we've been working on this since 1937, and we spent $1.7 million in 1940 fucking two to make this motherfucker, so you're gonna watch it and you're gonna like it. That's why. I don't blame people for not going to see this movie. I wouldn't want to go see it if I was depressed. If I'm going to spend money to go see a movie, I don't want to see that. And the other big controversy was that it was considered very anti-hunting. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So all of the, the hunting groups were like up in arms like, we're not this evil. We're not this big threat to the environment. What are you talking about? So what I thought was kind of interesting is that a man named Sidney Franklin actually had bought the rights to adapt the novel. And he is very well known back in that time for being like the king of adaptations. And he could not figure out what to do with this. Wow. So that's when he sold it to Walt Disney. Snickering all the way. During the production of it, the procedure of how they did the animation was changing. So that also cut into their budget a lot because they'd have to redo things or find a different way around Mm -hmm. how they had traditionally done things. And that experimentation cost a lot more money. And this is also in a post-strike Disney too. So Disney was already kind of done with the animators. (laughs) (laughs) I found that 12 minutes of the intended film had to be cut because of cost-preventative measures. Yeesh. Also during the production, they tried to be really specific and narratively narrow with how they were approaching the story. They were going to have this moment where Bambi steps on Ant Hill, and then you go inside the Ant Hill and see the destruction that he caused. What? And they spent like a whole bunch of time developing this, and it just went nowhere, and they're just like, This isn't part of what makes this story interesting, so let's scrap that. Originally, they wanted six distinctive rabbit characters, like the Seven Dwarves, and then they decided to switch it to Thumper and his sisters. And they also had a squirrel and a chipmunk that were supposed to be, like, bigger presences in the film. 
and they cut the characters. It sounds like there's a whole lot of workshopping and not a whole lot of doing in this movie's creation. $1.7 million. I can't I can't repeat that enough. In 1942, $1.7 million. Shall what we the uh, adjust for inflation and see? Sure. <laughs> oh my god. So I just uh, did a little searching, and according to an inflation calculator at savings.org, $1.7 million in 1942 is $27,554,587. Oh my god. So yeah. And also, despite bringing in the animals to be studied, they also brought in human models to stand in for the animals as well. <laughs> so it just... It's no wonder that this took for fucking ever and spent that much money. Like you said, it sounds like they just did a whole bunch of course correction. No one was telling him no, as usual. <laughs> and usually that's a good thing, but in this one, it turned out to be a very, very poor decision. <laughs> but what I will say is that that child voice acting, man, that was a fucking adorable. It was really cute. It was effective. I don't even think that children of this day and age could repeat the caliber of that voice acting. Well, children of this day and age are too professional. The kids in that movie are just so earnest. And it works so well. It really does. Like, that's like my favorite part of the entire movie is just watching those kids go to town with those characters. It is really, really cute. But then it turns into the weirdest puberty situation <laughs> where none of the adult voice actors do a very good job at all. Yeah, they were a little awkward. I think Bambi was pretty serviceable, but there was no way that Thumper would grow up to sound like that. It was very posh. It was. That distinguishing between the child and the adult voice acting was very, very odd. It didn't fit for me. And say what you want about how plotting the entire thing is, but that animation with the photorealism, Ooh. it was just breathtaking. It really was. This is one of the ones that I would put on the background while I'm doing something else. It's almost like a uh, like a nature documentary. It is a truly gorgeous movie. I think it's the prettiest of all of them so far. And I think this is one of the first ones that had like a definitive illustrator tailoring the look of the film. It was more consistent. When I was doing my research, I remember them saying that they had this weird technique where the outsides of the frame were more washed out and more watercolory. Hmm. So it would draw your attention to the center of the frame, which is where the animation was. Interesting. And that's what led to the foggy look. and, mm -hmm. and Yeah, it made it kind of misty and more romantic. This is another one where the effects and the backgrounds are just the star of the show. Yeah, it's just a painting. Like, the animation is beautiful, too. They did some damn good work with that anatomy. Yeah. But it kind of gets lost a little bit in just how beautiful everything else is. I felt like they had weird eyes. I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time looking at deer, so maybe that's just the way deer look. Well, that was part of the process of designing the characters, is that they wanted to make them more human in the face. Okay. And give them more distinctive features. So that's why they had like the smaller snout and the mm. bigger eyes, especially for Bambi. Yeah, they just it looked odd. <laughs> And didn't you say that they were sometimes animating for Thumper after what the child actor yeah, was doing? apparently the casting director really, really, really hated this kid who <laughs> ended up playing Thumper, but the animators loved him. Like, they just completely fell in love with him. 
So they started animating according to his performance because they just, for some reason, they just really love this kid. Which, I mean, that still happens to this day. Oh, yeah. Where they just get so inspired by someone's voice that they're like, well, this is what the character is now. Yep. And you said that this is the film that they most reused the animation from going forward? Yeah, because they used a lot of the background. And then Bambi's mom appears in a whole bunch of stuff. Like, she was in Beauty and the Beast, apparently. But yeah, they they use animal footage and stuff from the movie to fill in for other things. That's a cost-cutting maneuver that they do a lot, especially in the post-Walt Disney era. They did such a good job on all of these animals that they're like, well, we might as well keep using them again so we don't have to worry about trying to make it as good. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, as far as the animation is concerned, and even just the movie in general, I I think the best way to describe it would be majestic or enchanting. I wouldn't call it enchanting. I think it was... It was romantic, and it was very dreamy, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't enchanted. I enjoy art, but if you're going to make a movie out of it, then make a movie. Yeah, I agree with that. This is just one of those kind of movies, like I was saying earlier, where I can just kind of sit back and kind of lose myself in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't really have anything on your mind and you're able to relax and kind of focus but, like, a soft focus. You can zen through it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, this is one of those movies where there's just so much not happening. Mm-hmm. So you're not worried about following a story or really even characters, like, as far as motivation is concerned. But it's just life, death, rebirth, assuming your place or position in the world. It's kind of the ultimate growing up story. Yeah. And you also said that it has some of the least amount of dialogue in any animated Disney film. Mm -hmm. It's mostly when they're younger. Yeah, because they're just, they're learning things and they're playing. But once it gets to the Twitter painting. Oh, (laughs) the Twitter painting. That whole entire sequence, maybe I'm just weird, but that reminds me of the ballet sequence in Oklahoma. Kind of. Where he's fighting the other deer. Yeah, it's symbolic. Like, that's one of my favorite parts. I'll be honest with you. It was one of the more interesting parts for me. Like, that was the best use, I think, in the movie of the music integration into the action. And I liked that the sky was changing Mm -hmm. while they fought, so you kind of knew who was winning. Right. It was kind of like a ballet. It was all about the movement and melody with it. It's a beautiful movie, and I think that... It makes more sense now than yeah. it did back then. I still don't like it, but I appreciated it more than I ever have before, which seems to be a running theme with the movies of this era for me. But that doesn't mean that you don't whine the entire time of, when is it going to be over? <laughs> that is completely true. I texted my mom when we started watching this movie. I was like, oh yeah, we're going to watch Bambi today. And she just sent me a whole bunch of tear emojis. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's like, no! That death sequence just... Oh. Oh, it still hurts. It's and, still not as bad as Lion King, but... Well, you actually see the body in Lion yeah, King. Yeah, <laughs> you see the thump. You feel it in your soul. But I like that it is so effective without anything actually being seen. Like, again, kind of like with the Snow White, the hand dropping with the apple. Like, you don't really see anything, but you feel it. Or with the witch in Snow White dropping and the vultures going down to her. You can feel the impact without actually seeing the visuals. It carries a weight. It really does. That emotional whiplash of her getting shot and then the crying moment when he's going through the forest calling her name. 
and then his father comes and your mother can't be with you now and takes him off and then all of a sudden la 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 time to have sex time to have sex like that's literally what happens i'm like oh no the entire audience is just like uh, what? what? <laughs> the transition was not there. Um, which I guess is kind me? of the point. Like, you know, life goes on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why we needed the midquel. So the second movie, the sequel that had Patrick Stewart playing the dad, mm. that was that gap, right? In yes. between the Twitter painting and the, your mother is dead now, son. That's like, what that movie was about? Yeah, the movie starts that. with that. What a way to start a movie. Yeah. Son... Your mother's dead. It's time to be a man. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's one of the ones when I was going through the Disney sequel catalog that I gravitated towards just because of how cute it was. Uh-huh. Same with uh, Fox and the Hound, too. No. It's nothing like the first one, and it, it kind of spits in the face of it a little bit. Good. Especially tonally. Maybe I'd like it more, then. <laughs> well, it's real cutesy. It's about them joining a band. Oy. Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. Or maybe I, I have seen that one, haven't I? I'm pretty is that, sure. Is that the one that has the Reba song? Yes. Yeah, okay, then I have seen that one. You made me watch it. But with the Bambi one, this was the era where they were trying desperately to actually use the proper character models <laughs> and make it look as close to the original that it was expanding upon as possible. Ah. Because that level of quality just wasn't there in the 90s. Oh, no. And also, a lot of the properties that they were trying to adapt in the 90s were current properties. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit more forgivable because they had, like, the Little Mermaid TV series. Mm-hmm. And the Timon and Pumbaa TV series. And Aladdin. And the Aladdin TV series. So when you get Lion King 2 or you get the two sequels to Aladdin, it's just kind of like, okay, that's basically a slight step above TV animation. Yeah. So you're a little bit more forgiving of it. You know what you're getting yourself into. But we're going back to Bambi. And if it don't look like fucking Bambi, then what's the goddamn point of doing Bambi? Yeah. Which is why I think that Dumbo 2 would have been really cute. Because I think that they could have really expanded on that art style. Because mm-hmm. the reason why it looked the way it looked was because of the budget. Yeah. And because of the time that they spent on it, which was basically no time. But if you could streamline that and update it a little bit, then I feel like it could have maybe been a better more consistent product right but with bambi 2 it's cute it's not exactly useful you didn't need to see that transition which i didn't think that was true of any of the sequels to be fair like there's no necessity for really any I of think them that the only sequel that i felt a necessity for that i like really appreciated was lion king 2 i felt like that was a continuation of yeah. a story that was kind of important to see because it was a completion of simba's story as opposed to a lot of the other sequels where it's just like, hey, you want to see some wacky characters again? <laughs> but having not seen Bambi 2, I don't know if that is the same deal. But I feel like in a lot of the sequels, that's what's missing. Like, in nature, I'm not sure what the life cycle of a common male deer is. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't. The fact that his mother dies and then, of course, his father, which is the king of the, the forest, comes in to teach him how to assume his place or his position is a concept that I'm not sure actually exists in nature. Not really. I think that if he was that young where he was barely eating solid food yet, he probably would have died. Right. So in nature, that probably wouldn't have been a thing that existed. But that's basically the conceit of the midquel. It's like a father-son buddy movie where they learn to interact with each other, especially since they haven't, you know, lived with each other because he was Mm -hmm. with his mom up until that point. And 
how they communicate and how his father is trying to teach him how to assume his position eventually, but also how Bambi is asserting the fact that he's not like his father and that he's a different person. That's very human to me. They're putting human morals onto the animal kingdom. Which I don't exactly think was the idea for the original Bambi. Yeah, I don't think that that was the point of it. Like, there was some human traits, because there had to be, because you had to align yourself with those characters. But I think that morally and idealistically, it was about the natural course of things. Yeah. Like... In the, the mid-pool, the deer that he fights for Feline in this one, they establish their relationship. Oh, see, that is kind of nice. That I appreciate that you get to see a little bit, like there's some foreshadowing. So it's interesting, and I think that it's not a hindrance. I think that some of the sequels are a hindrance, mm. like Little Mermaid 2, <laughs> Hunchback 2. It destroys what was built. And I appreciate that it was one of the last ones, I think, that was released before John Lasseter came in and cut the whole project and started shutting down those studios, that they were very particular, especially about the animation, but also that they wanted it to be an extension Mm -hmm. of what the original had done, as opposed to, well, we need to use this property to make more money, so let's just throw something out there. Right. Which I think that the only one that bridges the gap between being a decent sequel, a decent enough sequel, and one that is just kind of cute for the kids would be Lady and the Tramp too. Yeah, that one was kind of fun. But otherwise, you know, you get like the good ones like Lion King 2, or you get Hunchback 2. Like, there's no in-between. Well, I'm glad that we are starting to move out of this section. I'm just ready for Cinderella. Can we just skip Cinderella? (laughs) I need something that isn't going to hurt my soul. Soon enough. It has been... A A very intriguing undertaking. It's going to be interesting continuing and I'm curious to see how I feel about all of the rest of the eras now that I'm getting a feeling for what this franchise and what this company was created upon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going forward, Walt Disney had a little bit less to do. Well, he was busy with Disneyland, right? So seeing his producer influence is probably going to be a lot different than seeing his essentially directing influence. Well, it's nice to see also how as soon as he took his own creative control away from it, you started to make money again. But also it was a different era. Yeah. Because the 50s were were More forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. There were nothing but kids in the 50s. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot of marketing potential. And the fact that I wouldn't even describe a lot of these as children's movies. Yeah, they're more adult, artsy, weird things. Like, yeah, we have a princess. And yeah, we have, you know, a kid learning how to be responsible. And yeah, we have, you know, a cute little movie about elephants that can fly. But it's all morality tales. Yeah, like, it has something that adults are going to grasp onto somehow. And I feel like they're more accessible from Cinderella onward. Mm-hmm. I would not sit a four-year-old down with Bambi. Like, I just, no. I would not do that. They wouldn't pay attention. I don't think they would pay attention to any of these. Maybe Dumbo just because of the bright colors. Maybe Pinocchio, too. I guess. But isn't that a little bit dark, though, for I a think, four-year-old? Well, depends on the four-year-old. Yeah. It's funny that these are such a mixed bag, but they're also very coherent and cohesive. Mm-hmm. It's not what I expected. No, definitely not. 
So we have been essentially enjoying ourselves. Yeah, finding some way to find some enjoyment. I hope that you're enjoying it just as much as uh, we are. Hopefully more, because you're not the one that has to watch them. (laughs) But I guess the last thing that we got to talk about is our rating. Does it need to be out of five dead moms? (laughs) You should see her face Well, that's morbid as shit. Well, there's six bunnies. I mean, there's one thumper, but six bunnies, so... Six bunnies and a thumper? Well, five bunnies and a thumper. Oh my god, Destry. (laughs) So we'll do five bunnies and a thumper. So I would definitely give it the thumper. But I would say two or three bunnies. Yeah, that's about where I'm at. The thumper is optional. (laughs) I'm at two. It was a pretty movie, but there was nothing there. I was really bored for most of it. I kind of glazed over for a good chunk of it. I mean, like I said before, it's, it's kind of like a, a meditation or a contemplation on nature and animals and their place in the world and in the universe. And it tries to be much deeper than it actually is. So it's is. a movie that might be fun to watch when you're high is what I'm <laughs> hearing. Well, I'm curious to see once you find the book how it compares and also if the book actually delivers on that contemplation right because i don't think that it really does like i think that it has elements of it and i appreciate those elements and i appreciate the thought and care that it took to incorporate those elements into it but like we were talking about before they were not interested in that they were interested in animating ants yeah and having a zoo like (laughs) you can't make high art and be worried about ants and zoos like it doesn't work that way there were conflicting interests for this movie it seems It came out at the wrong time just because it took so damn long to get itself together. It's an odd amalgamation of a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings and and ideas that... Don't get delivered on. No. It's a cohesive movie. It's just not as deep as it thinks it is. It's an idea of a movie. It's not fully realized for me. I agree. So I'm going to go ahead and be the, the positive one here and say three bunnies and a thumper. Two bunnies. And an optional thumper for you. Optional thumper. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, that ends the 1938 to 1942 era. Thank God. Up next, we will be discussing all of the package films. As we mentioned earlier, we apparently we can talk about anything by the length that we've been getting out of these movies. (laughs) I really didn't think that we'd be talking for this long for any of them. No. And the initial idea was to put the complete thing on YouTube, and that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Like, we're going to have to sit down, we're going to have to find, like, the best five minutes... Of everything. Of everything, and then just put that on YouTube, and then link to the rest of it, because... Damn boy, we can talk. Yeah, but thank you for coming along on this journey with us. with us. We have a Twitter, at Idealist underscore the. We also have an Instagram, which is the Practical Idealist, or our names, Destry and Katie. And... We look forward to continuing this journey. But do we really? (laughs) And it'll all be worth it when we finally reach the promised land of Cinderella. It's a struggle. I'm riding the struggle bus right now. I think that, you know, we need to talk honestly about our journey here. And I'm struggling. I'm struggling hard. Because I've been through these somewhat recently, I was more prepared, I think, than you were for just how milk toast they were all. (laughs) So it hasn't really phased me the way that it's phased you, but I'm not feeling it. 
I don't think he made a bad movie here. Like, this batch has been all decent. It's just nothing that's stuck out as, like, a classic to me. Yeah. Besides the history behind it. But, of course, anything made in the early 1900s <laughs> here is going to be history. So that doesn't really count, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we're going to make it. Somehow. Some way. <laughs> all right, guys. We'll see you in the next one. Bye.